how we are not little men and how we need to you know extract the literature what we can from the literature but also overlay that with a filter of what is the female form how is she distinct and how can we nuance these protocols that are going to fit um, a woman's experience uh, in terms of her health goals in terms of her you know her, her health goals and dreams Well, hello, everyone. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, I think it's really time that we bring some equanimity to the table as it relates to women's health and putting it on par with men's health. We look at medications, for example, and recognize that while medications are often prescribed for women, their development and testing really is male-centric, and that is inappropriate. Women's bodies are entirely different from men's bodies especially as it relates to fluctuations in hormones, as it relates to things like menstruation, for example. Our guest on the program today is the author of the new book, The Betty Body, and her name is Dr. Stephanie Estima. And let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Stephanie Estima is a doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in metabolism, body composition, functional neurology, and female physiology. She's been featured on Thrive Global in the Huffington Post and has had over 3.5 million article reads on medium.com. She has helped thousands of women lose weight, regulate hormones, and get off medications with her signature program, The Estima Diet. And you can hear her every week on her podcast, Better, with Dr. Stephanie. Her best-selling book, The Betty Body, which we are going to talk about today, explores a female-centric principle uh, as it relates to nutrition, uh, exercise, physiology, and stress management for women so that they can understand their natural rhythms and the cadence of their hormones and how these are actually, as she calls them, superpowers. Think about that. The variations uh, each month in hormone levels in a woman's body uh, representing superpowers. It's a new way of looking at things, and I'm very excited to be doing this interview today. Well, Dr. Stephanie, hello. Hello. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you, too. Gosh, I, I just feel like we've done this before. <laughs> That's very true. Very recently. <laughs> we did that. We did this about a week ago on your podcast, and now, yes. uh, now Payback. So I very much enjoyed your book, and uh, I am super encouraging of women and men to, uh, to take a look at this, because I think there's really great information there. Um, I want to just begin by the kind of epiphany that you experienced. Uh, here you are, having working through your uh, chiropractic training, and you're uh, driven to, to be the best in your class, and, and all the things, you've gained a lot of weight, and then after that, you have this experience with your period uh, in Italy, and it yes. was, a, uh, I would say, a game changer for you. So maybe we can just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So at first, I'm thrilled to be here. I had such a wonderful conversation with you on my podcast. I can't wait for my audience to hear all of your wisdom, and I hope to return the favor um, here. So yeah, what you said is all accurate. I uh, wanted to be a chiropractor. I knew that that was my life's work. Very hard, you know, worked very hard to achieve all the grades and all the things to get in there. But in that process, um, 
and I think that the whole through line really of the of the book um, that we're going to talk about today was that I really treated myself like a little man, right? So I would push myself and not really honor my own female physiology, my different cadence and rhythms that I had. And as a result for really for decades, um, my menstrual cycle was a, a gong show. So it really felt, and I wrote this in the book, that it felt like it was a punishment. I was getting punished every month for being a woman and I would have these uh, horrible cramps. I had disturbed, you know, very irritable, very moody. Um, I knew that, um, and I don't think I wrote this in the book, but when I was going into practice, so if I knew I had a new patient or a report of findings, and I was within the first day or two uh, of starting my period, I would always have to bring two pairs of pants because I knew that the the flow was so heavy. I was definitely going to at least bleed through one pair, um, and you know, maybe two. So uh, it was it was this constant worry and this constant, um, you know, you know, ball and chain really that I had to deal with for many years. And I spent, um, after a couple of very difficult years. So I, ha I went through a divorce with, uh, two young children. Anybody who's ever been divorced knows how difficult it is in and of itself when you're separating from your partner and the emotional, uh, stress that that can cause and children just add into that mix. And I also had, because in my, you know, I think when it rains, it pours, my clinic had also burned down within, oh my um, <laughs> so I had a, a clinic that was flattened and, um, I was rebuilding that. And I was also going through the separate with my ex-husband, who I have a wonderful relationship with now, but at the time it was very um, strained. So I decided to take my kids, uh, take my family to Italy for some rest, some R&R, some very needed R&R. And I did what you might do think when you go to the Mediterranean seaside. So lots of uh, sleep, lots of walking. I would walk in the morning to get my cappuccino. I'd walk after my meals and the meals were not keto friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew, right? Who knew that walking could be good for you? Or cappuccino uh, for that matter. <laughs> oh, and I have to tell you, even the train coffee in Italy somehow is just, you know, orders of magnitude better than, you know, the the most, you know, shishi posh, you know, uh, coffee shop here. But anyway, had, the, you know, great food, uh, lots of walking, lots of sunshine out in nature, sleeping until I naturally felt like waking up. And towards the end of that uh, vacation, I got my period. Um, we were there for three and a half weeks. And normally that would have been the clincher. That would have been the thing that ruined the vacation where I would, you know, be holed up in the, in the, in the hotel room with a mask on, you know, full of medication, trying to ameliorate, um, some of the symptoms. And it was really different this time. It felt like it kind of just came in, did its thing, you know, I was fine, like no heavy bleeding, none of the stuff that I was regularly, uh, dealing with. And I sort of came back to, I mean, I live in Toronto, so I came back and I said, okay, I know, I know that everything is just better in Italy generally. Like they take their food to a different level of, um, um, 
you know, or, orders of magnitude better than you might experience in, in Toronto or New York or or have you. Um, but there were things that I was doing that was different there. There were environmental and lifestyle changes. So I was getting sunshine. I was honoring my circadian rhythm. I was walking. I was doing all of these things. So I wanted to really begin to deconstruct what were some of the things that made such a rapid turnaround for me. Because within one cycle, I felt like, a you know, I, I wrote this in the book. I felt like a goddess. I felt like this is what it feels like to menstruate, you know, the way that I'm designed to. And, you know, I started experimenting on myself. It was an N of one originally. And then I expanded it into my practice with my female patients um, who I was, I already had a nutrition program in place. And then we started playing around with um, how we can alter macronutrients and how we can alter the nutritional composition of the diet based on where they were in their cycle. And, you know, for, it took me about a couple of years to really like dial that in. And w- the result is really some of the things that I talk about now, which is how women should really be honoring the natural ebbs and flows of their ever-changing hormonal milieu and how we can alter things like the diet, our training, our supplementation, how we are not little men and how we need to, you know, extract the literature, what we can from the literature, but also overlay that with a filter of what is the female form? How is she distinct? And how can we nuance these protocols that are going to fit um, a woman's experience uh, in terms of her health goals, in terms of her, you know, her, her health goals and dreams. So that's, that's really the, the backstory behind the book and my own, my own personal story into sort of coming into, into my own. There was a part about what you were just uh, talking about that I'd, I would just like to amplify for our viewers, and that is that you make it very clear that the, the month or the 28 days is a very dynamic experience uh, in terms of uh, what is going on in the female body. And I'm going to say as opposed to what goes on in men, because uh, there are such incredible variations in hormone levels in the ratio between various hormones, including estrogens, uh, progesterone, testosterone, uh, the various release hormones, the binding hormones, etc. And beyond that, beyond the fact that you call attention to that and explain what a woman might be experiencing based upon that part of the cycle, uh, you also go into fairly great detail in terms of how a woman honors those changes during the month and really is able then to participate in in changing this, as you call it, arch enemy, uh, into really um, you know a superpower, as you characterize it. Uh, the that women and when they finally relate and gain um, this relationship with their hormone fluctuations, which are part of the game that they gain this uh, superpower. They rein it in and become really masters of of their destiny. Absolutely. I think that that is part and parcel of, you know, becoming a fully actualized woman. And I think that when we grow up not knowing about, you know, we there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of, you know, quiet whispers around what our period might look like. I mean, most people, when you say menstrual cycle, they think you're actually referring to the bleed week. They think you're referring to that first week of your cycle. But if we can begin to remove some of these stigmas around understanding the ebbs and flows of your cycle and understanding how the change hormonal composition 
of your body every single day of that 29 or 30 day cycle is going to alter your sleep, your mood. It's going to alter your metabolism. It's going to alter, you know, how hard you can push it at the gym. What, you know, all of these different constructs in our everyday life. When we understand that, then we can begin to make better decisions, more informed decisions around our behavior. And we can begin to relax some of the belief structures that we may have inherited in growing up. And I'll, I'll give you an example of of a couple of them so for me i've always really been a big proponent of physical fitness and resistance training and there would be times in my cycle unbeknownst to me because i wasn't tracking my cycle where i would you know go to the gym or you know i've now i've constructed a more of a home gym um it, through this pandemic but you know, I go to the gym or I show up for my workout and let's say it was supposed to be a leg day and I would just be gassed. Like I would just have no gas in the tank. I wasn't able to push myself or to follow through on the program that I had set for myself. And I used to blame myself. I used to say, what, like, what is wrong with your willpower? Why can't you just like punch it out and do the thing that you set out to do? And there was one such instance not too long ago, actually, where I was like, I wonder where I am in myself. Cycle. Like I haven't checked in a couple days. So I picked up my phone, looked in my little app and I was on day 27. I was like, oh, that's why <laughs> it's because this is the part of my cycle where we see and we outline all of these different um, phases in the book. But here, in, you know, in the couple of days leading up to your cycle, we see a pronounced drop in progesterone, a pronounced drop in estrogen. And so what's happening now is that the endometrial lining, which was building up, expecting that fertilized um, egg, is now becoming ischemic. There's no um, oxygen that is now um, being relayed to it. The blood supply is being cut off. And then it it dies, those cells die, and that's what your period is. It's the shedding of that endometrial lining. So trying to push yourself to train really hard in those three to four days where we see that metabolism of progesterone and estrogen is, is not a great idea. So we talk about different ways that you can alter your training in those days. I talk a lot about cross crawl, like going for walks, things that are really good for uh, your corpus callosum, yoga, Pilates, like more restorative types of movement. Um, so that's, that's an example of how a woman, you know, cause otherwise if she did, if I didn't know that I was right, I was, you know, a couple of days out of getting my, my period, I would have been like, God, I just, I just wish I could just stick to the thing that I set out to do and, and to follow through on it. And there would be like the guilt, shame, blame circle that I think a lot of women can, um, can relate to. So that's, that's one. Yeah. So that's one. I was say that it, it occurs to me that this notion of, um, slowing down at the time of actual menstruation, uh, this is not a new concept. I mean, uh, when you think of uh, Jewish religious, for example, uh, religious idea of the mikvah, where a woman would go with others to a particular bath and not yes. have the chores of, of day-to-day life and just, you know, get a few days of R&R and have her period. Uh, and, um, you know, it, so there was a recognition, even traditionally there, of the importance of changing your approach to life as it relates to this very, very important event. I'd like to look at the corollary there, because you're, you're talking about how during the course of a 28-day cycle, there are uh, various influences of these hormonal variations and their relationships on things like appetite, libido, ability to sleep, energy for exercise, etc. But let's look at the flip side. Let's look at how those lifestyle choices impact 
the the dynamics of menstruation and uh, uh, can be leveraged to allow women to uh, have a better experience. I mean, I think that you, you bring up a very good point in the book, and that is that, you know, women think that lots of cramps and headaches and water retention, et cetera, uh, are, is just the way it goes. You know, take some mydol or ibuprofen and maybe a diuretic, even if it's really bad, and modern medicine using drugs designed basically for men and repurposed in this case for women uh, will be your way out and just basically, you know, that's the way it goes. But you make a, a really good point throughout the book that lifestyle factors, you know, we could talk about sleep, diet, et cetera. So how, what can you tell women uh, in terms of empowering them uh, with respect to making these choices in terms of what they could expect to experience? Sure, that's a good question. And I take a little bit of time in the book to talk and to distinguish between what you're talking about, which is what is experienced commonly and what is actually normal. So when we think, and I'm a bit of a word nerd, so I spent you know several paragraphs dissecting this because I think that when you... And, and society has really normalized menstrual pain. It's like, oh, you know, and we hear this even in, you know, the the um, um, labor and delivery wards. It's like, enjoy your pregnancy, get the epidural, right? Or it's like, enjoy your period, take the mitol, take the ibuprofen. So we really want to distinguish between what is common and what's normal. So common, if you if you conflate those two words, if you think that your headaches around your uh, period are normal, or your the distension, or the lack of bowel movements, or the you know the libido or the mood changes are nor are, are normal, you are not going to seek out the uh, solutions or the modifications to change them. So uh, versus if you think that they are common, but they are not normal, meaning that a lot of people experience them, but maybe this is a larger symptom of modern day adaptations that we've made, you're not necessarily going to seek out the um, the solution otherwise. So when we think about what, how you can use your menstrual cycle as your superpowers and what are, what would be normal menstruation, there's, you know, I think chapter three is the chapter where we talk entirely around what is normal. The first piece, the first actionable advice I would give for any, anyone listening is to begin to track your cycle so you can actually get some data, right? So we want to be understanding what's the length of your cycle. You know, it could be 28 days, which we most commonly refer to. It could be 29, it could be 32. You could, you know, and over the course of time, you'll also see that change as we begin to move into perimenopause. You'll, those early stages of perimenopause, you may see a shortening of your cycle. So what once was 29, maybe now is 27. And then, of course, in later perimenopause, we see that extension. We see, you know, many, many cycles, many anovulatory cycles where they will go months without a period, for example. So we want to look at the length of your cycle. We want to look at the quality, like when you are in your, on your bleed week, when you are shedding that endometrial lining, what does your blood look like? What is the color of your blood? How is there any clotting in the blood? If so, if what is the size, right? We want to be thinking about, um, you know, in the book, I talk about like dime size, clots are you know some of those are, are considered within the within the scope of normal but if they're sort of the core if they're a quarter size or they're larger or they're all the time 
or your flow was so heavy as I've previously uh, shared where I was, you know, needing to bring a change of clothes, um, then that's, that would be considered excessive. So we want to be collecting data. You can get a lot of data around your bleed week. Um, and then generally, I think when we're, when we're looking at the hormonal variations and and we can, um, I can start to get, you know, really geeky here. If you'd like uh, doc, would you like me to sort of go through like week by week, what some of the hormonal fluctuations are? I, I think an overview would be really good because I, I think, um, you know, I, my, my, my sense is that women pretty well believe that there are the three weeks or three weeks and a couple of days, and right. then there is that five-day period where there is bleeding, and the, the, the three to three and a half weeks leading up to it are just neutral. And what you really impress upon the reader is that these are dynamic changes that are, yeah. uh, women's bodies are experiencing with reference to hormones and downstream uh, effects on other hormones like leptin. So I, I think by all means, go for it. All right. So let's, let's categorize it week by week. And I, you, in the book, I talk about this like week one, two, three, and four. Keeping in mind, of course, that if your cycle is 32 days or 33 days, that each of these phases are not going to be exactly seven. They may be slightly elongated by a day or so. And conversely, if you have a 26 or 27 day cycle, then these are going to be slightly compressed. But just for ease of 28 divides into seven, really nice. So we're going to do, we're going to do it for four weeks. So in that bleed week, as I, as I mentioned, when we look at the hormonal composition of the, of the, of the female during that week, Typically, everything is quite low. So we see estrogen is very low. Progesterone is not in the picture at all. The only hormone that we really do see um, that's working to hold down to f- hold down the fort, if you will, is follicular stimulating hormone, which is doing just what it says. It is stimulating the follicle, which houses the egg. And this is also a very unique distinguishing feature. One of the sexual dimorphisms, of course, between men and women is that we produce one, one, we one egg every month, and that's it. Whereas when we when we look at the converse with men, they are producing millions of sperm like daily, right? So we produce one precious egg every month. So follic- under the influence of follicular stimulating hormone and estrogen in, and, and some others, we will see that, that follicle develop and there'll be one egg to release. So your bleed week, um, we put it at seven days. Most women don't bleed for seven days. Uh, they'll bleed anywhere from like three to six days. And what you'll notice is in the beginning of the week, uh, especially day one, day two, you may notice some cramping. That is normal because we are the uterine, we are seeing some contractions of the uterus. So that is that is normal as we shed that endometrial lining. But if it is if, if it's keeping you horizontal, if you're not able to engage in your activities of daily living, like you're not able to work, you have to take, you know, multiple bouts of medication in order to get through it, your breasts are tender, you have brain fog and you have migraines, that would be considered um, abnormal. So as we move in through that week, what we start to see towards the end of week one is we start to see estrogen levels starting to rise. So normally um, in week one, towards the beginning of the week, if we were to do, if we were to look at some plasma estradiol, we might see, you know, levels of like 
five picograms per deciliter, seven picograms, like very, very low. And then towards the end of the week and then into the second week, your, your estrogen reaches astronaut, like it reaches its apex. So it, it can go from, you know, I've seen labs where they, I've had women go from five picograms per deciliter all the way up to like 500, you know, so there's like a 10 X, there can be a 10 X change in a matter um, of days. And again, estrogen is an anabolic hormone. So she is working to, um, and I just give her the pronoun she, it's, it's, it's just a hormone, but, uh, so, you know, it's working to plump up your cheeks and your eyes. And it's also responsible in our teenage, uh, girls, uh, for those secondary sex characteristics, right? The hips, the breasts. Um, and as we have estrogen rising, of course, that is also helping to develop that follicle. The other thing that we have moving into that second week, so now we're in the, you know, you've stopped your period and now we're in that week before you ovulate, which I should just say is the point of your menstrual cycle. Like I know that the, you know, the bleed week often gets a lot of attention because we can, we can extrapolate a lot of data from it. It's the one that's most obvious. We all know when we're on our period, but the point of your cycle is to ovulate if you're in your reproductive years. So I just wanted to um, highlight that. The other thing that we see um, increasing is our testosterone levels. And so unlike men who have more of a 24 hour uh, rhythm of testosterone, of the, they, will, they will sort of go through their testosterone and their estrogen cycle about every 24 hours. Women will see that their testosterone will peak in this week just before ovulation. So again, uh, you might see that your interest in sex, your libido might be uh, amplified. You might, um, if you are uh, having orgasms, you might find that they are much more intense. Um, you are also, and of course, testosterone is very important in lean muscle mass. So I, I talk about in different chapters um, of the book, how we can profit from that increase in testosterone, because it is a very important hormone for women. Often we phenotypically ascribe estrogen as like the female hormone and testosterone is the male hormone. And of course that's true. Like there's, you know, 10 to 80 times more testosterone in a male versus uh, a female, but that is also an abundant hormone for women as well. So we do have to be paying attention to it, especially over the course of our lifespan. And I also like to zone in on it um, in perimenopause because that can cause a lot of issues when we see low T or excess androgens where you're not aromatizing the T properly. So you have a situation where estrogen increases dramatically to plump up the face. May I say, make a woman uh, at least feel or look more attractive. Yeah. And yeah. testosterone. Uh, relating to libido is increased and all this is setting the stage that so that a, a woman is more attractive and is more desirous of of sex Correct. getting ready for the big moment of ovulation when hopefully uh, hopefully whatever if it's supposed to happen that's when uh, fertilization will take place so it's it's all choreographed around that central event that you indicated is is really should be the focus of of attention of this whole process Yes, absolutely. And I think that um, in terms of our behavior this week, we will also see that we are much more extroverted, right? We are much more chatty and um, there's, uh, we are generally, um, you know, much more engaging uh, versus when we move, once we ovulate, we tend to become slightly more introverted, which I'll talk about in just a moment. And I think that this is you know, even if we just were to take these two weeks and say, wow, like mother nature, you know, has really thought of everything, right? Like it's, it, it it's is incredible. It really is incredible. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful dance. And I think as we become more aware of these things, you know, and I talk about in the book, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment with the, in the luteal phase, there's in that second phase of your cycle, there are times when we're going to feel really great and extroverted, like right around ovulation. Um, and then there's going to be times where we want to go inward and we want to be more exploratory and more reflective. And that really happens after we ovulate. So ovulation is, you know, the release of the egg from the follicle that is under, again, the influence of luteinizing hormone, which we haven't mentioned yet, but I, I liken luteinizing hormone, and this is just the way that I teach it so I can have people remember it. I, you know, we all have that really funny, awkward, you know, family member that will come in, you know, at, you know, Easter or, you know, Ramadan or whatever it is, and they'll come in, they'll burst in and they'll say, hey, everyone, I'm here. It's always like the crazy uncle. I, I have a crazy uncle in my family. So it's almost, he always comes in, you know, after everyone's in the middle of eating and he'll usually come up to me like, hey, Steph, what's going on? And he'll like smack me on the back of my, you know, on the back of my, um, you know, on my shoulders, which, you know, sometimes and in the past, like makes me almost like, you know, want to spit out my food. And that's what luteinizing hormone does, right? Comes in kind of out of the blue and then helps with that release of the egg from the follicle. And you are really only one, one thing to really note is that egg is only really viable for 24 hours, maybe 36, uh, you know, and at, of course, as we age, there's uh, that, that changes, but you are not fertile all month long. That's another fallacy that we, we think we are, you know, we are always fertile. We can fall pregnant at any moment and, you know, I remember when I was, you know, when I was younger, I used to like, my whole focus was like not getting pregnant. Right. And then when I moved towards, you know, with my husband and wanting to have children, it was a really big mind shift for me to say, okay, like now, you know, the shop's open, like we're ready now. And in that first month of trying when I didn't, when we weren't pregnant, I was like, oh my God, I can't like, isn't, I can't, I can't believe this. Like, you know, that shift in mindset for women can also be quite, um, uh, abrupt. And I think that, um, just knowing that you're not fertile, there's times in your cycle where it is physiologically impossible for you to fall pregnant, uh, I think is, is important as well. So egg is viable 36 hours is called 48 if we're being generous. Um, and then we move into the secretory phase or the luteal phase. So now the follicle, we refer to it now as the corpus luteum and the corpus luteum is now going to be secreting progesterone. So pro gestation, pro pregnancy hormone. Um, and that is going to help to amplify and to build out this endometrial lining. Cause the hope, whether or not you want children or not, the hope is that you're going to receive a fertilized egg. So your body needs to make sure that it's ready for that. So in week three, we see a drop in estrogen and then she comes right back up. And then for the next, you know, call it week and a half uh, to two weeks, we see that sustained release of estrogen. And then we also see towards the end of week three, that progesterone that I was referring to. So we will see progesterone reach uh, the peak around day 21, 22. If we're talking about a 28 day cycle, uh, it can be, you know, on either um, over or under, depending on how long your, uh, your cycle is. And progesterone has really important effects on our sleep, on our appetite, on our digestion, on our mood. So you can, you will, many women will notice, particularly if you are someone who has a, 
you know, tendency towards metabolic dysfunction, type two diabetes, if you are any, if you are inflamed in any way, you tend not to notice it as much in that follicular, those first two weeks of your cycle as you might in your luteal phase. So you might feel that it's, you know, it's harder to, you know, get your rings on. You may feel like you're retaining more water. You might feel more distended and bloated after, you know, a meal. Your bowel movements are not as regular. Your sleep is now becoming more uh, disturbed. And this is all under the influence of progesterone. And you're generally, your body temperature is also um, lifting up as well. And then there's that, you know, that, that phase that I talked about uh, just briefly, um, around having progesterone and estrogen drop once you know your body's like okay it's not here <laughs> the egg is not fertilized we have to get rid of it and this is often when a lot of women who complain about premenstrual syndrome or even more severely pmdd this is where we start to see um a lot of like the tender swollen breasts very like very irritable crying emotional feeling very emotional and one of the things that i like to reframe for women because i think that having this premenstrual syndrome, uh, you know, there's like endless jokes about it, or, you know, you, you, we sort of suffer in silence around it. But one of the most beautiful things I think about this particular phase is that oftentimes a woman will start to feel like, God, like my, my, my partner can't do anything right. I feel like I'm the worst mother in the world, worst parent in the world. My job is my boss is on my nerves. I can't, can't choose the right nail polish. Can't, I can't like my, all my clothes are terrible. And this is what your body is doing here is it is, uh, this is what I would refer to as a negativity bias. And we talk about this in the book where this is the opportunity for you in this three to four days to evaluate the things in your life that are not working for you. So what is it about your relationship that is annoying you? What is it about your career or the choice that you, the choices that you've made or your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your children? And so for your next cycle, for your next 28 days or 30 days or whatever, you can create new intentions and you can create and you can solve problems, solve these problems, because if they are coming up every single month, this is a way for your body to tell our brains, you know, this, this is what's not working, right? These are, I, I, I almost like to at the risk of sounding woo, like these are like the messages from our soul, right? This is like the things that are not working. Can we please pay attention to them? In the same way that we like to ignore symptoms, we like to put band-aids. This is the time where your body's like, excuse me, we need to really pay attention here. No, and I think that's very valuable. I think calling it out and even memorializing it is is valuable. You actually later in the book talk about keeping a gratitude journal and how valuable that is when you memorialize it and you can get your arms around it. So I think you know, this is a great exercise and it is uh, metaphorically purging yourself of these things, but it's quite literal as well in the context of menstruation. Yes, I love that. Absolutely. And and you can oftentimes we, you know, men will say, well, I'll think about it. And what I often will tell my women that I work with is, you know, figure out the things that are not working and then on your bleed week fig like figure out the pr like how you're going to change it so you know you you bleed on the problem right like you'll be able to figure out how what are the changes that you need to make for this next cycle or whether it's a month quarter year you know decade what have you our society seems to be really uh focused on the notion that um 
that women uh, during menstruation, uh, we don't want to know about it. You better uh, just you know use the latest pad or, or tampon and get on with it. Whether you're an athlete or a, a busy mom, whatever it is, it's like it does. You know, you want to bury it and and pretend it doesn't even exist. And what you're saying is to really be there with it, really experience uh, the event and participate and understand that it's an opportunity. And I think when we begin to share these ideas, I mean, this is one of the things that I loved about your book uh, was this idea that we're more alike than we are different. And when we begin to share ideas and say, you know what, I'm having this struggle, someone might be like, you know what, I'm having the same thing too. And that's how you foster connection between whether it's, you know, female friends or people who have just been enlightened to be able to not to not shy away from this and to say, okay, like, how can we help you? And I think that as a healthcare practitioner, I think that this is a conversation that really does need to be, um, uh, this needs to be a conversation with our female patients. We need to be able to look at a woman's menstrual cycle as a vital sign so that we can infer change, you know, we can infer hormonal status, we can help to change and nuance her, all the lifestyle mods that, you know, you talk about with brain health and, and help promoting healthy brain aging and metabolism and body composition and just general enjoy, the enjoyment of our life. If we constantly feel like I'm the only freak who's feeling this way, you know, it can be really isolating. And I think that opening up the conversation, even though, you know, at least I know that it's different now with some of the younger you know the millennials and 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 younger but when i was growing up the, like the worst you could you could never talk about your period even with your girlfriends it was something that was just never discussed and i really want to break down that barrier for women that are my age and older that this is something that we should be sharing this is information and wisdom ancient wisdom really as you as you uh noted with the um jewish um culture we also see that with muslims we see like they would go to you know tents and they would bleed you know together for a week and you know th this is across time there's been this um almost sisterhood or camaraderie between women where the, these channels of information there was a there was a there was a proxy to be able to change to share and i think that now in modern life we are in individual houses no one knows their neighbors and you know we, we don't talk about this stuff so i think it's really important that we begin to you know, you're right about it always being off the table. Uh, even in the world of medicine, it, it, it's, you know, in my generation, it was still something we, unless you were in OBGYN, wasn't right. anything you really talked about. Something else that you bring up in the book uh, several times uh, that has uh, remained off the table is the notion of the health benefits of women having orgasms. So I'd like to first ask why it's off the table, why is there no discussion, and then let's move into why it's so important. Yeah, I think very similar to um, the menstrual, the, the menstruation conversation, it's considered taboo. I think that because we don't know, you know, the depths of female sensuality and sexuality, uh, female anger, like all of the, you know, we tend to want to bottle it up and say, we don't know about it, so let's just pretend that it's not there. And I think when we talk about, you know, sexual prowess in our modern society, men are often lauded, right? It's like, well, he, you know, and I'm totally aging myself here, but it's like all the notches on his bedpost, which is how my grandmother used to refer to it. But, you know, when you, when you think about, um, you know, sexual partners, it was really a woman, at least in, in, even in my upbringing, 
It was very much, you can't have sex until uh, you're, it's time to have children. And that's the only really acceptable time, right? So we are taught, we're not taught about our fertility. We're taught to fear our fertility. Like I also grew up thinking, you know, and I, I, I said this on one of my, uh, one of my podcasts that, you know, I used to think get, I could get into a swimming pool and I could become pregnant. Like it was just, I had no idea how it worked. So we're not taught about our fertility. We're taught to fear our fertility and we're not taught how, you know, our, as a, te- a young teenage woman and in her twenties and thirties and beyond, how your sexual appetite can actually be very, very, very important part of finding health and being comfortable in your body, right? We are, um, we're sort of taught to shut it down and, you know, at the risk of, you know, sounding even more taboo, I think that a lot of us, men and women, we learn about sex from porn and we, we see, you know, couples engaging and it's like, she's, you know, orgasming after like two minutes. And, you know, that's, it's just not how it works in, in real life. So I think it's, it's important for us to start talking about what are some of the different, you know, ways that women are aroused and why that's so important for health. And as you, as you alluded to in your original question, you know, I think that when we're talking about, when we're talking about brain health, I mean, you're the brain guy, right? It is one of the things that we know for women specifically, I know it's different slightly for men, but for women specifically, if we want to promote healthy brain aging, if we want to help to induce a state of parasympathetic balance. So when we're thinking about the autonomics we talk about two main branches of the autonomic system, our sympathetic tone and our parasympathetic tone. So many women are often um, what I like to call like chronically stressed or inflamed until proven otherwise, right? We, we are, you know, we go, we have a career, we're paid for that work. Um, Some might say unjustly, we, there's, you know, that pay gap, but then we come home and we still do the majority of the unpaid work, right? So we are taking care of the, we're cooking the food, we're doing the laundry, we're taking care of our children. So we are doing the majority of unpaid work as well. So we're sort of burning the candle um, at both ends. And that leaves, and then as we age, we have aging parents, we have challenges with our children, maybe we get divorced or there's challenges in, in your personal relationships. So there's this chronic low-grade stress and inflammation, which contributes to sympathetic dominance, meaning that you are constantly activating this fight or flight mechanism, this hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And I talk about this in the book. It's actually a beautiful system. You know, when you look at your sympathetics, you know, the proverbial tiger jumps out of the bushes, whatever, and you're supposed to either fight the tiger or flight the tiger, you know, and it, what happens is of course your reproduction shuts off, immune system shuts off, your digestive system shuts off so that your cortisol and the other, you know, catecholamines and the other sympathetic uh, neurotransmitters and hormones can throw all of your attention to your musculoskeletal system. So you can either fight or flight, right? But when that system is chronically activated and we don't have the balance on the other side of our parasympathetics, which you know, I'm, t- I'm like singing to the choir here, but you know, it's like, you know, the rest, digest, stay and play, you know, in your parasympathetics is where we heal our digestive system, where we amplify our immune response, where we have, where we cultivate our fertility and our vitality. That's for men and women. You know, fertility is a, is a is a robust signal for health. So I think that when we are 
orgasming and at least, you know, and it doesn't have to be with a partner. You know, I talk about in the book, like you can find a toy and call it your partner. Uh, if you are orgasming or climaxing at least once a week is the minimum. Um, you can now begin to tap into that parasympathetic if you're that nervous system, if you're having trouble doing that. And that's going to it's going to help with all, all sorts of vitals. So we talk about heart rate. It attenuates, you know, when you're having regular orgasms, your heart rate improves. So it lowers your blood pressure improves, your oxygen saturation improves, your respiratory rate improves. It has a, um, a, a, a va it has a benefit on your pain tolerance. So a lot of women in that period, you know, that three or four days right before they begin to have their period or menstruate, if you are having orgasms in that time, it can help your pain tolerance, meaning that you are able to um, deal with more without feeling it. You're able to deal with more pain. It helps with your nociception in the brain. So there's all of these different incredible benefits um, that regular, you know, not to, and not to mention, you know, the oxytocin and the serotonin and the dopamine, like not to mention all of those neurochemicals that are <laughs> I love now that everybody says not to mention, but then they mention. I do the yeah. same thing. <laughs> um, I want to just, right. you know, crystallize one uh, takeaway here, and that is that, you know, the, everything, let's just say, is focused around conception, fertilization, and that the, the whole notion of, of reproduction here is threatened by stress. Stress activation of the sympathetic nervous system takes energy away, if you will, or the focus of the body's physiology away from digestion and reproduction uh, towards the stress-related uh, event or challenge, whether it's being chased by the, the tiger or whatever it may be, not getting home in time to cook dinner and all of those things. So uh, you, you bring up a, a, a very good point that there's so many demands on a woman's life these days and what she's obligated to do, you mentioned uh, food for the children, et cetera, that you know, there's ample opportunity here for these uh, things that a woman feels that she needs to accomplish, ample opportunity for that to be disruptive as it relates to uh, a monthly uh, orchestration of hormones and even as it relates to digestion. Right, absolutely. You, you said something else that was very interesting in the book, I hope I get it right. And that is that you don't ever recall having a male patient cancel an appointment because he had a sick child at home. Right. Yeah. So that would happen all the time. I would often have moms who would re, uh, reschedule their appointments because, you know, the child was sick. But I never, never had fathers doing that. So, I mean, that was really, you know, illustrative of, you know, the different roles that we play as men and women. And I'm not, not, I'm not saying that we don't need to have these different roles. Of course, I honor and I love men. You know, this is not an anti-male um, um, rant. I have two sons. I have, you know, a partner that I, I'm, you know, I want to raise my children in a, in a way that they're, you know, like they're literate in the female physiology. This is not like I hate men. So just just to say that. But I think that a lot of times women will sacrifice themselves. They are the martyr. They will they will um, we are they are conditioned through society or cultural norms that they their primary role is to give to others and while i'm not i'm not making a judgment call on whether that's right or wrong what we often find is those women tend to forget about themselves so they might have a really long list of to-dos taking care of the children you know making sure the house is like all the different things but Tend they don't and even friend 
Yeah, it's the tend and befriend. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, they, they don't even make their own to-do list. So it's really important. And in that chapter, I was talking about some of the ways that you can mitigate stress and, you know, talking about the female stress response, the tend and befriend, as you were um, just saying, I would often joke in practice that, you know, that women's, you know, you know, wine with your lady, like the women's, you know, night that you go like ladies night that you go out with your girls is actually really great for your neurological health because that's helping you connect. It's like coming back to that oxytocin, right? It's helping you connect with other people to feel grounded in your environment. And I would, I would elicit the stress response all the time. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. I was, I would have, you know, exam after exam after exam in chiropractic school. Um, and we, we would have like two weeks of exams straight where it was like anatomy one day and then, you know, physics the next day. And then, you know, toxicology, like it was like big subjects and we'd have them like Monday through Friday, you know, for two weeks. And I would, I would say, you know what, this is a really great time to clean my makeup brushes. <laughs> like I would just, you know, and I'm like, gosh, I'm such a procrastinator, but this is me tending to my environment. I'm like, you know, that little, that junk drawer with all those eat those mail, uh, you know, bills that I haven't, looked at, it's time for me to organize that with all those plastic bands. Like I need to make a little plastic band ball right now. And it's like, you have anatomy tomorrow, like, <laughs> you know, get to your books. So I, I think that when we understand that we also have these separate and distinct stress responses, we can also begin to identify how we can begin to take care of ourselves. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I wanted to share there too. You, um, you spend a, a lot of time talking about the effect of uh, changes in lifestyle and how that uh, plays out in terms of some of the imbalances in um, in the month-long cycle. And you don't go hog wild on supplements, but you do mention three. You mention uh, fish oil, turmeric, and I believe berberine. Yes. So maybe we could just briefly touch on each of those and why you feel they're important. Sure. Yeah. So I talk about a couple of foundational supplements that I think everybody should be taking. Uh, Omega-3s, I think, are very important. So uh, we know about the um, the brain benefits, reducing inflammation as a global systemic uh, goal it should be everybody's goal, irrespective of sex. Um, and I talk about having two to three grams there um, daily. Um, the other uh, ones that we go into, so berberine is a really interesting one. I, I often will talk about berberine in the context of particularly my women who have androgen excess or where we see some of the dysfunction in their, meta in their you know, metabolic dysregulation if it has its roots in insulin dysregulation or insulin insensitivity. So berberine is a really interesting uh, natural uh, compound that has been shown to mimic uh, some of the uh, benefits that metformin, um, which is a drug uh, for those of you listening that are not familiar, is usually uh, is a drug that's been around for like 80 years, very common in type 2 diabetes to help reduce um, uh, blood sugar. So berberine, you know, taking uh, 1500 milligrams, um, well, divided into three doses, so 500 milligrams thrice daily, um, and right before meals has also been shown to blunt um, a very high postprandial or post-meal uh, glucose spike in the blood. And this is often one of the first signs that we see, right, when we have metabolic syndrome or even worse when we see uh, type 2 diabetics is that insulin and glucose response, the dance there is a little bit uh, deranged. So we talk about that in the, in, through the lens of insulin dysregulation, 
a lot of times I love to give this to my PCOS ladies. So when we see androgen excess and when we can, we can look at, you know, I've maybe looked at their fasting, uh, glucose, then we do like a little, either an OG, like, a oral glucose tolerance test, or, um, you know, we give them a, and they, maybe they have a CGM and they're looking, you know, postprandially every 30 minutes, we're kind of looking at what their blood glucose is. Um, I will usually recommend berberine. Vitamin D is another one. Uh, I know you didn't mention it, but that's Stephanie, a really... Let me just for one second. CGM sure. for our viewers means continuous glucose monitoring. Yes. And uh, I would just uh, call uh, attention to a recent interview, if, if you guys want to look at it, that I did with a Dr. Casey Means from a company called Levels, where we talk about CGM and how valuable that is in terms of knowing moment to moment what your blood sugar levels are. Sorry for interrupting, but I'm not sure everybody knew what CGM was. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's my bad. I apologize. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I, I love Casey. She's, she's gonna be on the podcast too, on my podcast. I can't wait to have her. So that's awesome. Um, and the other one, vitamin D is a really important, um, you know, it's called a vitamin. It's not really a vitamin. It's more of a hormone, but, uh, you know, we want vitamin D3, uh, usually blended with K2. Um, and depending on where you, um, live in the world, although this is not necessarily a guarantee, but the sunnier, you know, the, if you have, you know, better temp, if you're in Florida, you're in the Caribbean, you're in, you know, Rio de Janeiro, you're probably going to need less, uh, vitamin D than someone like myself who lives in Toronto where there's four seasons and. And through the winter, I don't get as much sun exposure as someone who's further south. I will say, though, that I have had uh, labs come back from I've, I had a patient in Florida who had abysmal vitamin D. So that doesn't it doesn't guarantee uh, that you'll have great vitamin D. But typically uh, a minimum of 2000 international units um, a day of vitamin D is sufficient. And then if you're someone like myself who has gray winters, then, you know, in the wintertime, we, we bump that up to 4000, 5000, sometimes 6000 I use. Um, and what was the third one that you mentioned? Was it magnesium? Well, you have ber a berberine, turmeric, fish oil, turmeric. Mm -hmm. and vitamin D. Yeah. So turmeric is, um, uh, or curcumin, uh, is really uh, a really potent anti-inflammatory uh, globally, right? So uh, we see this in the brain and in the body. Um, and if you, if you look at, um, you know, uh, Persian food, Indian food, that yellow rice that they will have. Uh, it's because, or even just the curries that you'll see in Indian cuisine, it's because they're using uh, curcumin, which is the active ingredient um, in turmeric. So that is, again, potent anti-inflammatory. One to two grams a day uh, would be and it's like a sustained release. So I don't have any affiliations with any particular uh, supplement company, but if you look for like a sustained release uh, capsule, you're, you're sort of getting this like, you know, a trickle of uh, this anti-inflammatory agent through the blood through the day. And last but not least, fish oil, you talked about, I guess, omega-3s. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you talk about not a whole uh, abundance of laboratory studies, but the key players, I think you wanted to look at uh, uric acid, leptin, uh, fasting blood sugar, uh, and yes. others. So, uh, I mean, I think people might be surprised that they can have their leptin level checked. Uh, you actually refer to it several times in the book. What is leptin and why do you think it's so important to know the level of it? Sure. Yeah, this is one of the things that we see, again, another sexual dimorphism between um, men and women. So leptin, before we you know, talk about the differences is basically the hormone that tells you to put your fork down. It's the satiety hormone. It's secreted from your adipose tissue and it tells you when you're full. 
So the normal dance, if you will, is you're eating, you know, food, you have, hopefully you're having whole foods, you know, calorically dense, lots of phytonutrients, all that stuff. And your, your adipose tissue will signal to um, the appetite regulation centers in your brain that you've, okay, this is enough, enough food, enough calories, it's time to take a break. And you have that feeling of being full or starting to feel full and you say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm done now i'm done with my steak done with my done with my meal now for women um for whatever reason um we tend to i mean first we tend to have more adipose tissue than men so there's there's that but generally um when we equate for BMI, so when we sort of, you know, pound for pound or BMI for BMI between men and women, women tend to need more leptin than our male counterparts in order to put the fork down, you know, to have that, to have that feeling of satiety. And what that means is that we are generally more resistant. Our brains are generally more resistant to the signaling, to the, to the messaging that leptin is trying to tell us, which is put the fork down. So what happens when we're resistant is we tend to consume more calories over time. So we will eat our food, leptin's being released, but those appetite regulation centers in the brain are not picking up that signal. So you continue you don't feel full yet so you continue eating and of course net net over time what ends up happening is you consume excess calories and you know weight gain ensues so generally you know i i think that some of the the methodologies in the book really do help with improving uh, our leptin sensitivity so we talk about um, a uh, nutritional therapeutic intervention of ketosis. We talk about ketogenic cycling. We talk about fasting. We talk about resistance training and supplementation, which we've touched on. Um, but if those things don't work, right? If you have done the book and you've been at it for, you know, 10 months, six months, and you're like, man, I'm still, I still don't feel, I'm still gaining weight. One of the things that you might want to look at is getting your leptin levels checked. And there's no standard, as far as I'm aware, there's really no standard, you know, optimal level, but I typically like to see leptin under 12 nanograms uh, per deciliter. So, um, that, that would be my, um, that would be my, uh, uh, recommendation there. And then the serum uric acid, as you were saying as well. So sometimes, and I'm, I'm sure that I'll be interviewing you on this sometime soon when you're, when you're, when your book comes out, but sometimes your serum uric acid, um, that gives you an idea of how well your liver is processing fructose, um, which is a type of sugar. Um, and so if you're consuming too much of it, your uric acid levels are going to be, uh, greater than, um, five milligrams per deciliter. So you also want to maybe look at your uric acid levels. And then the other thing in sort of looking at the leptin resistant pick is also looking at um, thyroid. So looking at some of our thyroid hormones, particularly reverse T3. So um, without getting too uh, in the weeds here, we have active and inactive hormones. We have T4, which is uh, needs to be converted to T3. And then there's also reverse T3. So reverse T3 almost acts as the break. If there's too much active, if there's too much T3, your body will now start to produce more uh, reverse T3. So it is like a mirrored form, if you will, um, of, of T3. So we like, um, I, I like that, that to be, um, under 15 nanograms per deciliter as well. So taking a look at that. But you do, uh, really get into the upsides of, of being on a ketogenic diet, not perhaps all the time, but I mean, you did report some pretty, uh, beneficial 
issues related to being in ketosis. Yes. Yeah, so I love uh, for women, at least for one cycle, so at least for a 28 day uh, cycle to be in pure ketosis. And, you know, there's been lots of like, what's ketosis anyway, but, you know, at least, you know, 0.5 uh, millimoles per liter where you are, if you're using a urine strip or your breathalyzer or like blood, you know, you're doing the finger prick, uh, we are at least getting, you know, light purple on the urine strip. You're getting, you know, I, I use, um, for the breath analyzer, I, I love the company Keto, so K-E-Y-T-O. Um, and then, of course, um, doing the, the finger prick test as well. So those, um, I think every woman uh, should be in at least one cycle, maybe two or three cycles of therapeutic ketosis. And why that's really important as it relates to leptin is what I often find, and I've, I've put now like, thousands of women through uh, this this protocol is we often when we are when we start any type of nutritional intervention there's usually you know how many calories am i taking in and what's the macronutrient composition of the diet and so we will often say okay so for most women you know we want to start with a 70% fat in in this first phase 70% fat 20% protein and then you know the fill is carbohydrates like 10% uh, is and the, and of those that those carbohydrates are going to be whole foods so we have the green leafy vegetables i talk about resistant starches and soluble fiber and all of that and what I often notice with women is that because fat is so satiating that if we, let's say we start off at a target of having, uh, call it 1500 um, calories a day, what they often will report if, if, I, if they're tracking it properly is that they've only taken in 1100 or 1200. And they don't stay there forever, but that reduction in calories, the the eating that increased, you know, satiating effects of the fat does help to improve those leptin levels. And that's why I, I love I love to geek out on labs. I love data, but often it's not that it's a, I don't want to say it's a waste of money, but I think that you, if you can master some of the foundation, some of the foundational elements that we talk about in the pod. So we talk about the keto, like the ketogenic diet for a cycle, moving into keto cycling, getting your resistance training dialed in. Like you want to talk about having a glucose sink, like increase your lean muscle mass, start to train your resistance and amplify your immune system and help your motor cortex and help your mood. Like it, you know, there's usually two, if, if someone has a problem, it's like, like two, like two or two or three things that we can change. Like we, they need to train, they need to meditate, and they need to change their foods. So, well, yeah. in, in terms of the um, satiating effects of fat, I've uh, I've always liked to say that you you don't really hear about anybody binging on avocados, right? <laughs> you can't, you can't. Uh, yeah. Before we close, I want you to uh, just tell us who's Betty. <laughs> <laughs> Betty is that is the Betty in all of us. So you, uh, David, have a Betty inside you. I have a Betty inside me. It is really the self-actualized version of ourselves. So it's not, you know, the name comes from my podcast. So I, I have a podcast called Better, which you um, are going to be on. And I'm really excited for my audience to uh, to hear our conversation. And we started calling our fans of Better our Bettys. So Better's love. Oh, I get it. So that's where the, the word comes from. 
And then I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary, just happen like happenstance. I was on Earth, and it ha- there's a the definition. <laughs> I know. It's like avoid it at, at all costs, except if you look up, um, you know, the definition of a Betty. And it it said something something to the effect of you know a Betty is like a modern day queen. You know, she's quirky, she's loving, she's you know always trying to you know be her best self. And I was like, I'm those things. Like I'm quirky. You know, I'm lo-. so it really just it's it's just the persona of who you think your best self is. Well, from one Betty to another, thank you uh, for spending time with us today. Terrific book. Uh, I think I've read it twice now and uh, great job. Thank you so much, Doc. That means so much coming from you. We'll see each other soon. Thank you. Wow, that's interesting information. What a great perspective. What, What a great way of contextualizing Uh, the differences here and what goes on within a woman's body and uh, importantly how lifestyle choices profoundly influence the interplay of hormonal variations not only with menstruation uh, but with overall well-being. Our guest again Dr. Stephanie Estima and here is her book The Betty Body. I think it's very very worthwhile uh, for women and for men to be reading this book. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter, and I will be back soon. Bye for now.